Bam 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 Hey everybody, welcome back to Go Help Yourself, a comedy self-help podcast to make life suck less. Oh, I just realized, what if it was like a dramatic and heavy podcast? Reenactment. To make life suck less. <laughs> nope, not here. We're not wearing pants, so that should give you a tone of the show. This is the podcast where we read and review a popular self-help book each week, and we give you the high points, the low points, what we feel are the highest value takeaways and the big pitfalls to maybe avoid or reframe or think critically about because authors are humans and they're not perfect and neither are your hosts. Yeah. So welcome. What? I am. Oh, Lisa's fine. I'm fine. Lisa's fine. I just burped. I didn't do a morning cry this morning. So that is our Full Frontal Friday episodes. And then on Tuesdays, we do a mini-sode where we check in on any homework that was assigned to us from the book because we always try to walk the walk of self-help. And we really explore anything and everything that's not a book that's related to self-help because there's so much amazing stuff out there. And I just want to point out that the very first episode of Go Help Yourself aired on January 1st, 2019. We are now officially in 2021. Happy New Year, everybody. Do you remember what we were feeling like this time a year ago? I was like, oh my God, fuck 2019. Oh, this is a, an explicit podcast. Welcome. Yeah, Lisa's hands are on her we face. We had no idea. No, I was like, 2019 sucked. I cannot wait to get into 2020. And to be to be transparent, we will timestamp this. This is November 10, mm-hmm. 2020. Yep. So we don't know what's happening in 2021. That's correct. Where we are. It's our first time recording after the election in the United States. Exactly. And the week-long election. <laughs> and if you're going, why are these bitches recording six weeks in advance? It's actually because we needed to get ahead in episodes so that we could carve out time in December for so many exciting updates for the yes. podcast, for yes. the website, for things that we're expanding on. So that's exciting. And we were also smart to give ourselves last week off. <laughs> yes. During the election, we were like, no, can't do no, it. So yeah. that's probably wildly old news by now, but happy new year. I really hesitate after 2020 to say anything along the lines of how could it get worse? So I'm not going to. <laughs> And I don't want 2021 to be like, hold my beer. But yeah, yeah, so that's what's happening. Welcome. And Lisa is going to walk us through the very first book of the year. And I have no idea what you're presenting, Lise. You have no idea. And let me tell you, I was reading a couple other books and then last week happened and I just didn't have the brain capacity. And the one day that I did, I spent it joyful. So <gasps> I, love that. I Yeah, so I ended up Choosing a smaller, shorter book I that it. I hope is not. Uh, I'm going I'm to invite our listeners, and if you're brand new and starting your 2021, I'm going to kick it off right with some self help. I'm going to beg you to take, to take this in the way that <laughs> to take, take a nap. Don't do it. It's intended, which is self care for the country, because I am presenting on tyranny. 20 Lessons from the 20th Century by Timothy Snyder. Oh my <laughs> God, you're coming in wide. so hot. Misty, I'm holding the book up. Tell people what you see. It's super cute. It's a thin kind of small book, and it looks like it's got like a soft kind of paper cover. 
and embossed in it are the the words. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. really pretty. Well, Lisa, I just want to yeah. say, like, I thought this might be like a book on how to decorate a tablescape, like slide into nope. 2021 real easy. But instead, we're talking about tyranny, everybody. <laughs> Welcome to the wild, crazy world of self-help. <laughs> okay, let me give you just a little bit. This was actually published in 2017. Okay. And some book prices and some new information and new exciting changes for our longtime loyal listeners, our LLLs. Yeah. The paperback is $9.19. The Kindle is $8.99. Ooh. And we are no longer giving prices on Audible because we have been recommended by a listener to encourage Libro FM. Mm-hmm. Or Libro. Libro sounds better. Sure, but I thought maybe it was like library, Libro. Listen, it's L-I-B-R-O, tomato, tomato, yeah, Libro book, sounds like, tell them a lie, bro. It's Libro.fm, <laughs> and they don't say how to say it on that title page. Anyway, it's a way to download audiobooks without a membership. You can convert a membership. Mm-hmm. It's it's a very flexible. It's $7 on Libro. That is and so reasonable for author. an audiobook. Yeah. Yeah. There's no hardcover because it's not that kind of book. The author wants you to carry it around in an intentional way. And Lisa, if you had to sum up this book in one sentence, what would you say it's about? Mm -hmm. It's a famous quote, and it is, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. Oh my God. I do need to take that nap that we talked about earlier (laughs) before we do this. Well, listen, I don't know what's happening. I know that as of today, the current administration has not conceded the election. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of yeah. Remember, we're un- living in the past. Yeah, uneasiness. And so, I wanted to read this book. I saw him be interviewed on the Daily Show with Trevor Noah in the spring of 2017, and I wanted to read that book. But it took until the colossal failure of this administration handling the coronavirus and over 200,000 of my fellow Americans dead. We're at 230, I think, yeah. right now for me to read yeah. it. And I also needed to wait until after the election. I don't think I could have handled it. Let me tell you about the author. So this is from his website. Timothy Snyder is the Richard C. Levin Professor of History at Yale University and a permanent fellow at the Institute for Human Sciences in Vienna. Dumb. He speaks <laughs> He speaks five and reads 10 European languages. Same. He has authored eight books and co-authored three more. His work has appeared in 40 languages and has received a number of prizes, including the Emerson Prize in the Humanities, the Literature Award of the American Academy of Arts and Letters, the Vaclav Havel Foundation Prize, the Foundation for Polish Science Prize in the Social Sciences, the Leipzig Award for European Understanding, the Dutch Auschwitz Committee Award, and the Hannah Arendt Prize in Political Thought. But does he have a runner-up medal for least bad macaroni and cheese in Culver City Bake Off? Like I do. Do you? Oh, okay. He was a Marshall Scholar at Oxford, has received the Carnegie and Guggenheim Fellowships, and holds state orders from Estonia, Lithuania, and Poland. He received his Bachelor of Arts in European History and Political Science from Brown in 1991, and then became a British Marshall Marshall Scholar at the University of Oxford, where he completed his doctorate in 1997. And this is from his website, and this is just barely a bit of his bio, and he has a list of awards. It is long and redonkulous. So he's incredibly qualified, incredibly brilliant. And here's the reason. I also wanted to read this book because I'm a horrible student of world history. Like truly the worst. Can I just say really quickly, I think so many Americans are. 
it's just not taught in a truthful way. It's not taught in an extensive yeah. way unless you go to college and actively seek out more than the one required history class, which is typically American history. You're not really going to get it. I didn't have to take any history in college. Oh, really? I did. I mean, I guess in my sociology, like a history of that. Sure, science, sure, 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 sure. My first true history class was in my summer. I had, I'd say one summer in college and I took it as a pass fail because everybody took it as a pass fail with this professor because he was brilliant and he was such a wonderful, it was called the presidents and the press. It was a lovely exploration of how the relationship has changed and he's no longer living, but we used to write every now and then. And I would tell him how much I appreciated his class and like, his name was George Jurgens at Indiana University, and he was such a wonderful lecturer, and he told the stories. It made me love history like that. Yeah. But if it's not a good history teller, I can't do yeah, it. Anyway. Absolutely. It also makes sense that I couldn't read this book until now, because as we know, I'm vendor, te- I'm vendor tender. I am very tender. <laughs> and knowing about like really digging into human atrocities is tough for me to recover from. Like it some is. You really it feel it, it in your body. You're such an empath. For days. Yeah. It sounds really dumb, but I have been working with my therapist to not take on this because I It's too I, much. I can't. Just, you can't take on all tyranny much. and all injustices in the world. It's a lot. Well, yeah. It takes me days to get like back up to functioning because I will just think about You're it. You're doing um, so great. It's also why I can't watch like live action animal movies <laughs> like Homeward Bound. Nope. Can't. But here's what I've been thinking. And I've heard somebody say like what we teach about the Holocaust is incomplete. Mm. Like, what do you know about the Holocaust, mostly? I know that more than 6 million Jews were murdered, that Adolf Mm. Hitler was at the helm, right? Mm. That this was a long product of basically the way Germany was treated after World War I, you know, over the decades led to this retaliation of really trying to seize power. Those are the broad strokes. I love it. Uh, you know even more than I about the stuff about how Germany was treated. Mm. I think most of us know the effects of the Holocaust, but we don't know how it happened. Right. We know more about what happened versus how it came to be. Yeah, because we we look back now and we go, how the hell did so many sane people co-sign yes. on that? And this past year, I felt like I kind of get it. You are exhausted. Like we're living in a pandemic, which is different, but just the velocity of news that comes and the the things that happen is just overwhelming. Well, and when people and are unhappy and they're looking they're for some yes. someone or something to blame and then someone charismatic comes along and tells you who's to blame. It's like, it's a fucking it's, nightmare. It's, it's yeah. wild. Okay. So this book it's 20 lessons and 20 chapters. It's like 130 pages, I think. Wow. Each lesson has a chapter. It's a summary paragraph explaining it and explaining the lesson. And then more meat and information in the chapter, giving contextualization on how this happened in the past and how it relates to today. And it was amazing. Great. So the book's epigraph, which is the quote that's at the beginning of a book, it's by Lezek Kolakowski, who was a Polish philosopher and historian of ideas. And the, and the epigraph is, in politics, being deceived is no excuse. Oh, shit. Yep. So here are the 20 chapters and lessons. I'm just, we're only going to spend time on a few. Because, spoiler alert, everybody should have this book. Yeah. We don't want to, we don't want to slide into tyranny. And we were like, yeah. at the top of this slide with our butt in the seat for a minute, she says with dead but eyes. Listen, 
until Inauguration Day, we still on it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So here are the chapters and lessons. One, do not obey in advance. Two, defend institutions. Three, beware the one-party state. Four, take responsibility for the face of the world. Five, remember professional ethics. Six, be wary of paramilitaries. Seven, be reflective if you must be armed. Eight, stand out. Nine, be kind to our language. Ten, believe in truth. Eleven, investigate. Twelve, make eye contact and small talk. Thirteen, practice corporeal politics. I think I said that right. Mm-hmm. Corpor- you did nail that. Politics. Fourteen, establish a private life. Fifteen, contribute to good causes. Sixteen, learn from peers in other countries. Seventeen, listen for dangerous words. Eighteen, be calm when the unthinkable arrives. Nineteen, be a patriot. And twenty, be as courageous as you can. Oh my God. How does any one person do all that? It's quite easy. He oh, it's just it. that They're simple? Kind of small. No, no. It's very difficult, okay. but it isn't like you have to be Captain America. You okay, know what I mean? but I would appreciate radical permission to carry around a shield with a star on it. <laughs> Girl, you got Thank it. You. Okay, so I'm going to talk about seven chapters and share a bit from each of these. And again, I loved it. It only took me like two hours to read mm-hmm. total because I was like going back and like really contemplating and there were words I had to look up which is why I love my Alexa. I don't want to say her name too loud because she makes it. Oh, Nana calls like, hers you Penelope. You have to have a code word for your Alexa. Oh, all right. I can't think of one now. But anyway, I'll spell the, I'll say, how do you say? And I'll spell the word. And she'll say, well, I say it like this, but I'm often told that I <laughs> that I don't say it correctly. And I'm like, that I don't say words correctly. And I'm That's so, so funny. Okay. Chapter three, beware the one party state. This is what he says. The parties that remade states and suppressed rivals were not omnipotent from the start. They exploited a historic moment to make political life impossible for their opponents. So support the multi-party system and defend the rules of democratic elections. Vote in local and state elections while you can. Consider running for office. He says Thomas Jefferson probably never said that eternal vigilance is the price of liberty, but other Americans of his era certainly did. When we think of this saying today, we imagine our own righteous vigilance directed outward against misguided and hostile others. We see ourselves as a city on the hill, a stronghold of democracy, looking out for threats that come from abroad. But the sense of the saying was entirely different, that human nature is such that American democracy must be defended from Americans Mm -hmm. who would exploit its freedoms to bring about its end. The American abolitionist Wendell Phillips did in fact say that, quote, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. He added that, quote, the manna of popular liberty must be gathered each day or it is rotten. Oh, my God. So he talks about how people voting for Nazis in 1932, even though they were like, I, I don't know. I'm not on board with right, this. They were but, a small you know. party, right? They were this like small third party underdog. He says they may or may not have known it would be their last free and fair election until 1945. Oh, my God. Same with the Czechs and the Slovaks who voted in 1946 and the Russians in 1990, who, by the way, have not had a free and fair election since. Is that when Putin came into power? 1990? Yeah, I think. The Czechs and Slovaks voted in 1946 and did not have a free and fair election until 86. 
So there's an American proverb that says, where annual elections end, tyranny begins. Oh my God. And we have to think about it because our forefathers knew that's what they were running from. Mm -hmm. So when they created this, they created these institutions Mm -hmm. to withstand tyranny, but it requires constant vigilance. It does. And something that I just learned was that Franklin Delano Roosevelt was the first four-term president elected. That's right. But he died 28 days into his fourth term. And I just didn't realize that it wasn't always a rule to only serve two terms. It was more like a tradition until it was amended sometime in the middle of the last century. And it's like— Because in the beginning, George Washington said, I'm not going to continue. Yeah. Because he could have immediately made it. It never was— a rule, you know? So like you could see how somebody could get into office and be like, I'm just going to go five, six, 12 terms. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Chapter four, take responsibility for the face of the world. The symbols of today enable the reality of tomorrow. Notice the swastikas and the other signs of hate. Mm. Do not look away and do not get used to them. Mm. Remove them yourself and set an example for others to do so. Mm. He says, life is political, not because the world cares about how you feel, but because the world reacts to what you do. Mm -hmm. The minor choices we make are themselves a kind of vote, making it more or less likely that free and fair elections will be held in the future. In the politics of the everyday, our words and gestures or their absence count very much. And then he gives examples from under Stalin's rule and, and the Nazi party. And he says, in different regimes, like, you know, there were people put on on stores, obviously, Aryan store or Jewish store. He says, you might one day be offered the opportunity to display symbols of loyalty. Make sure that such symbols include your fellow citizens rather than exclude them. Yes. And it's so interesting that you say that because I absolutely remember at the beginning of Trump's presidency seeing a lot more Nazi symbolism, a lot more. It was was like certain people were emboldened, you know, to be vocal about their exclusionary feelings. And I remember thinking like, oh, please, there's no way this, this is America. Like, there's no way this is going to grow any bigger than this. Like, it's fine. And it's like, you're saying like, no, you have to take that so seriously. You have to look at that and address it immediately because look how much it grew. Chapter seven, be reflective if you must be armed. If you carry a weapon in public service, may God bless you and keep you. But know that evils of the past involved policemen and soldiers finding themselves one day doing irregular things. Mm. Be ready to say no. He says authoritarian regimes usually include a special riot police force whose task is to disperse citizens who seek to protest and a secret state police force whose assignments include the murder of dissenters or others designated as enemies. He talks about how... All of the large-scale shooting operations in the Holocaust involved the regular German police without any preparation or training for this task. And in rare cases where the policemen refused orders to murder Jews, they were not punished. So a lot of it was like just not knowing what to say or not wanting to appear weak or afraid of being punished. But I was thinking he wrote this, obviously, immediately after the election. But before all of the protests and what was happening in Portland and Seattle and like... That was only like a few weeks ago where we are now, but it feels like it was two years ago. And literally having this secret task force that's coming to disperse protesters. Yes. That sadly was given 
you know, from the Department of Justice, yep. right? And like certain cities labeled, I forget what they called them, like enemies or whatever. Yeah, I know. Okay. No, you're right. We really were right on the brink. Mm-hmm. I hope we're not now in January. How's it going, we, everybody? I don't think we knew. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think we knew. And I, I think we felt it, but didn't want to know. Yeah, it was too scary to acknowledge. Okay, chapter nine. Be kind to our language. And what he says is this. Avoid pronouncing the phrases everyone else does. Think up your own way of speaking, even if only to convey that thing you think everyone is saying. Make an effort to separate yourself from the internet. Read books. Mm -hmm. So he talks about Victor Klemperer, a literary scholar of Jewish origin, turned his philological training against Nazi propaganda. He noticed how Hitler's language rejected legitimate opposition. The people always meant some people and not others. He says the president uses the word in this Mm -hmm. way. Encounters were always struggles. He says the president says winning. And any attempt by free people to understand the world in a different way was defamation of the leader, or as the president puts it, libel. Mm. He says politicians in our times feed their cliches to television where even those who wish to disagree repeat them. Television purports to challenge political language by conveying images, but the succession from one frame to another can hinder a sense of resolution. Everything happens fast, but nothing actually happens. Each story on televised news is breaking until it is displaced by the next one. So we are hit by wave upon wave, but never see the ocean. Oh my God. He says, when we repeat the same words and phrases that appear in the daily media, we accept the absence of a larger framework. To have such a framework requires more concepts and having more concepts requires reading. And he gives great suggestions of books to read in this chapter. Oh, wonderful. Thank you. Chapter 10. Yeah. Believe in truth. To abandon facts is to abandon freedom. Mm -hmm. If nothing is true, then no one can criticize power because there is no basis upon which to do so. If nothing is true, then all is spectacle. The biggest wallet pays for the most blinding light. Oh my God. So that's how if you discredit everything, you can say whatever the fuck you want. That's Mm. right. He says, you submit to tyranny when you renounce the difference between what you want to hear and what is actually the case. As observers of totalitarianism, such as Victor Klemperer noticed, truth dies in four modes. The first mode is the open hostility to verifiable reality, which takes the form of presenting inventions and lies as if they were facts. Like fake news or science is fake. And he goes through piece by piece and talks about how the president did this Holy in, shit. Uh, during the 2016 campaign. The second mode is shamanistic incantation. As Klemperer noted, the fascist style depends upon, quote, endless repetition designed to make the fictional plausible and the criminal desirable. Can you think of any chance at rallies? Oh, yeah. At Trump rallies. Oh, yeah. That they repeated constantly that actually had no real, like they were just not possible in the real world. And they still chant them, even though that didn't happen. Lock her up. Mm-hmm. And build that wall. And build that wall. And they never happened. (sighs) They didn't describe anything that the president had specific plans to do, but their very grandiosity established a connection between him and his audience. The next mode is magical thinking or the open embrace of contradiction. So the president's campaign involved the promises of like cutting taxes for everyone, eliminating national debt, and increasing spending on both social policy and national defense. And these are mutually contradicting. Like they can't all be done. Yeah. You need the money that taxes generate to 
help yeah. pay down the national debt. Klemper says accepting untruth of this radical kind requires a blatant abandonment of reason. Oh my God. Or no reason to begin with in the first place. No, I think that there is reason. Real quick. You know what this reminds me of? What? I just watched the movie It Takes Two with Mary-Kate and Ashley Olsen over the weekend. <laughs> Hear me out. It's connected. Heather, my big sister, and I watched it. I drove up to San Francisco to visit her. And we watched this movie, and it is structurally really sound. The movie is so sound, but there is one giant thing that the entire movie rests on, and it's that Mary-Kate and Ashley are identical strangers. They were not twins separated at birth, like the parent trap. Like, literally in this movie, they're identical strangers. And here's how the movie deals with ignoring this radical untruth, right? The dad finally, when confronted with both of them, is like, oh my God, amazing, but it's impossible. And then they look at each other and they go, anything's possible. And then they just move on. (laughs) But it's one of those things where you're like, the entire movie rests on us buying this. And for whatever reason, in that moment, we go, okay, I do. So basically, I'm saying that like Mary-Kate and Ashley Olsen are directly related to tyranny. Like, do you hear what I'm saying? I do. I'll give you Klemperer's example. Oh, thank you. (laughs) He says, one of his former students implored him to, quote, abandon yourself to your feelings, and you must always focus on the Fuhrer's greatness rather than on the discomfort you are feeling at the present. Oh, God. Twelve years later, after all the atrocities and at the end of a war that Germany had clearly lost, an amputated soldier told Klemperer that Hitler, quote, has never lied yet, I believe in Hitler. So it's really an abandonment of reason. It's an abandonment of reason. The final mode is misplaced faith. It involves the sort of self-deifying claims the president made when he said that I alone can solve it, or I am your voice. (sighs) When faith descends from heaven to earth in this way, no room remains for the small truths of our individual discernment and experience. What terrified Klemperer was the way that this transition seemed permanent. Once truth had become oracular rather than factual, evidence was irrelevant. Oh my God. Yeah. And that's exactly what we've experienced. It's like, it does not matter how many scientific studies or proof or experts, legitimate experts who have dedicated their lives, you know, to studying things. It's like, well, no, fake, bye. I just don't, it just doesn't feel right. I don't believe it. Right. Two more chapters. 13, practice corporeal Politics. Nailed it. Corporeal. Nailed it. Right? Corporeal. Yeah. Oh, boy. Power wants your body softening in your chair and your emotions dissipating on the screen. Yes, it does. Get outside. Put your body in unfamiliar places with unfamiliar people. Make new friends and march with them. Oh. He says, for resistance to succeed, two boundaries must be crossed. First, ideas about change must engage people of various backgrounds who do not agree about everything. Yes. Second, People must find themselves in places that are not their homes and among groups who are not previously their friends. Protest can be organized through social media, but nothing is real that does not end on the streets. If tyrants feel no consequences for their actions in the three-dimensional world, nothing will change. And then he gives examples in history where this may change. Yeah, because if, if all the pushback is just in comments on Twitter, oh, well, I'll just stay I'm on just my throne and keep online. being a fascist and... Exactly. Holy shit. Exactly. The last chapter we're talking about is chapter 14, establish a private life. Nastier rulers will use what they know about you to push you around. Scrub your computer of malware on a regular basis. 
remember that email is skywriting. Consider using alternative forms of the internet or simply using it less. Have personal exchanges in person. For the same reason, resolve any legal trouble. Tyrants see the hook on which to hang you. Try not to have hooks. That is terrifying. He says, we are free only insofar as we exercise control over what people know about us and in what circumstances they come to know it. And our appetite for the secret, thought Hannah Arendt, is dangerously political. Totalitarianism removes the difference between private and public, not just to make individuals unfree, but also to draw the whole society away from normal politics toward conspiracy theories. And he talks about the email bombs right before the election in 2016. He says, as we learn from these email bombs, this mechanism works even when what is revealed is of no interest. And we're seeing that again right now in this election with Hunter Biden's laptop. Right. Oh my God. That is terrifying to be like, scrub your malware on a regular basis. Like, don't use the internet. Well, that's your homework. Misty, you need to set up malware or an antivirus software for your computer. And there are free versions out there. I just implore you and your longtime loyal listeners to, and yours, not mine, your longtime loyal listeners. You guys know who you are. (laughs) To do your research to find out which ones are verified and aren't aren't just actually malware on its oh, own. Holy shit. I wonder if I have some already. You don't need it for your phone if you have iOS okay. because it's inherently built in. Um, the apps have to go through a rigorous, whatchamacallit. Yes, um, very technical but term. I think Android yeah. has malware. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank okay. you. Okay. That is on tyranny. 20 lessons from the 20th century. Is anybody else's mouth dry after that? Anybody else? I don't want to, I didn't terrifying. want to start the year off like this, but then I was like, you know what? No. Yeah. It's on us. Yeah. It's on. I like us. it. Listen, you know, after the yeah, vigilance is the price of liberty. After the shell shock that was 2020, it feels right to have a downer as the first episode in 2021. No, oh, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No. I'm kidding. <laughs> oh, I feel terrible. No, don't. No, it's it's literally what you and I were talking about last week. Remember, again, it's November for us. It's like we have to stay so vigilant for every election forever. And Lisa and I are tired. We're both really tired. We know all of you are tired. I'm sure you're still tired. You know, even six weeks, eight weeks later, it's like, oh my God. And just realizing like we do need these things top of mind. And this is an episode you can go back and listen to whenever you want, annually, once a year, every few months. Buy the book, please buy buy the book. book. And what you see what I'm saying is that like the stuff he's saying isn't massively hard, right? Yeah. It's just changing your way of thinking. Setting up a malware thing to, you know, a software thing to run and check for malware once a month is not. Totally. Let me tell you my resistance to it is that I just fundamentally wish this wasn't happening. You know, like I wish we didn't have to be this vigilant. It's exhausting. Growing up, when I was not, awoken to the complexities of the world and having, you know, President Obama in power for two years, he was an actual two leader, terms. two years, two terms. I'm so tired. I get it, girl. I'm here. That's why I'm here yeah, for Yeah, but basically like these, these problems seemed like maybe some of them had dissolved because they weren't out in daylight as much as they are. And as we now know, they did not go anywhere but into hiding and stasis yeah. and just hibernating for a little while. So anyway, this is a really important book. Thank you so much for presenting it. I'm so glad you did. And I feel sad that we need a book like this and it's necessary. Well, we needed it in 2017. I know, I I know. It's crazy. And it's it's just crazy how much more it amplified. My landlord has chewed on it. Huh? I don't know if you can see that my landlord has chewed on it. She was really (laughs) concerned about (laughs) tyranny. And it's just crazy how 
how much more amplified all of those examples got, even as he did, because he wrote yeah. it three years ago. So, yeah. Lise, let me ask you some questions. Did this book need to be written? Uh, 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 yeah. Thank you. It needed to be written a decade and ago. And let I us all have it, it at, it at our, our bedside. Yeah. Yeah. I wish everybody, and there's there's so much more in here. I wish everybody would buy it and read it or buy it and listen to it because he talks about how Americans have kind of slipped into this way of thinking that our democracy is evident and it is everlasting. Yeah, like and it's like it's auto democracy. It's not. It's not. Yeah. You could see how just a few laws are passed with a certain party in total power. And then it's like, oh, cool. We do have 10 term presidents. No, thank you. Lisa, yeah. what did you try to put into this into practice from this book and how did it affect you? What I'm going to put into practice, it just kind of reoriented the way I think about it, which isn't that like there's a red and a blue America, that there's just this ideal of democracy and it requires work. It requires work. It requires effort. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people who are unwilling to put in the effort mm-hmm. are possible victims of tyranny. Absolutely. Do you feel the author missed anything? I mean, it is definitely one-sided, but he's also coming from his historical perspective. The lines that he's drawing are terrifying. I think some people will think that it's exaggerated, it's overworked, but I also think those are probably the same people who like small government. Sure. (laughs) So I think that they might enjoy what he has to say. Okay. And who would you buy this book for and who would you never buy this book for? I would buy this book for anybody who is breathing a sigh of relief after the 2020 election and feeling like things can quote, go back to normal. Mm -hmm. And I would never buy this for, I guess I would never buy it for a Nazi. Yeah. Cause they like tyranny. Mm -hmm. Unless they wanted to see like what to do. (laughs) You could read it. Well, they probably have better books than this. Yeah. Right. Right. And you already gave me my homework, which was to set up malware and all of you. Somebody send well, me a discount. Not set code. up malware. Set up a scan for malware. A scan. Oh, oh! I shouldn't like infect my computer with a virus. Got it. Oh, so glad we cleared that up. Oh man, I was about to click download on malware. <laughs> so I just want. Thank God I was yeah. here. I just want to say thank you for being with me. If you were looking for like a super uplifting book, we have them coming, and we have a million in our back catalog. This is important to me. I it value democracy. Yeah. And it should be important to everybody. I'm going to go ahead and say should. And it requires effort. Liberty requires effort. It really does. And I actually think that the book that I have coming for next week is a really lovely, wonderful, validating book that's just going to be a warm hug for everybody. And actually, you know, can be applied after this book. I'll I'll hint a little. It's about imperfection. And, you know... You don't have to be perfect even in fighting for tyranny, but just do something. Everybody do something. Yeah. 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 Thank you so much, Lisa. Great job. Thank you. And with that, everybody, may your fight against tyranny be abundant. Abundant. Goodbye. Nailed it. Nailed it. Go Help Yourself was produced by Misty Stinnett and Lisa Linky. Our theme song was written by the inimitable Matt Saff. Inimitable. There's nothing we love more than hearing from you. Email us at gohelpyourselfpodcast at gmail.com. We're also at gohelpyourselfpodcast on Instagram and at ghypodcast on Twitter. And you can go old school and check out our website at gohelpyourselfpodcast.com. It basically is a fancy PowerPoint slide. If you liked our podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review because it helps other people find our show. You know who else needs to find it? Your friends. Tell all of your friends. Okay, thanks. Bye. Bye.